Hello and welcome to Nightlight. The most repeated topic of all the topics in our audio library over the years seems to be related to the subject of how we really change. There's a series called How Do We Really Change? There's a series called The Power to Change, as well as over a dozen other titles that deal with similar related issues. And they're all true, and they will help those who seek answers. But I want to try to help us get to an even deeper root question today. Why is change so difficult? We're starting a new year and a new decade and many new challenges that uh, arise in the face of all of that. And that always causes us to become kind of thoughtful and uh, maybe we renew old struggles that we had laid aside and given up on. And uh, regardless of all that, we all long to be different than we are. But it is difficult to change. Anyone who's ever tried to move from a place of bondage to freedom in any area of life, knows the truth of that. Uh, Here's a letter from a person that illustrates many of my own thoughts about it. Quote, I need help. I've put off writing this letter till now, but the pain is becoming too much to ignore. I will try to get to the point, but I'm not sure what the point really is. I've been a believer since I was a teenager. I'm now in my late 40s. I've made some progress in my healing journey, but there are some parts of my inner life that seem to never change. No matter what I do, I still find myself back there, right where I started. I've begged the Lord to just change me. Why doesn't he do it? Well, why doesn't he do it? Just do it. After all, there are promises in Scripture that clearly say he will. Most of us can quote some of them. For instance, I guess the most common one is, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. That's the King James Version translation of that. The wording is not inaccurate. The use of the masculine pronoun, of course, does not exclude the feminine. And the statement that all things are already uh, new does not make a false promise. All things are already transformed in God's eyes. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was referring to the close of the old Adamic nature and its structures. When he stepped out of the tomb, that was the beginning of the end of the age and the inauguration of the new creation, that moment. But how often have we read those words, then looked at ourselves, and either wondered if we were misunderstanding their promise, or worse, even wondered if the promise is true. The more sensitive we become to the heart of God, the more we can see our own lack. It might seem that the closer we are to Jesus, the more frustrated we will be over how far we are from being like him. Now, newer translations of this verse may help a little bit. The NIV, for instance, says, if anyone, softening the masculine form, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Now, it only helps a little bit, though. It says that what has come is the availability of the new and the end of the old. And we tend to think that that means this change from old to new, which, according to Paul, is a done deal already completed, should therefore be already completed in us. And if words mean anything, that is what is communicated by that scripture. So then, why do we still struggle so much? 
Well, what about these two scriptures? They gave me a lot of trouble at first in my life with the Lord. And it's no help to assume that these verses only apply to the restored nation of Israel because they are obviously what God promises to the new creation itself. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27. A new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34 I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. When I read letters like the one that I quoted a few moments ago, or I encounter countless people who privately ask the same question, I'm reminded vividly of the days when I asked, sometimes screamed, the same question. Why won't you change me then? And sadly, Christians often don't help people who have this struggle, do we? You want to see just how legalistic and unloving and devilish, referring to the devil as the accuser or prosecutor, how devilish we can be. How many times have we encountered this attitude, either from church people or in ourselves? We hear of someone's repentance and we say things like, well, let's see if it's real before we celebrate. Or, depending on which branch of legalistic church thinking we are exposed to, how can they claim to be a Christian and still you fill in the blank? I understand that in this publicity-glutting culture where every mixture of shallow experience is paraded for good or evil, that we can become jaded in our affirmation of certain people's claims to be Christians. But at the heart of our resistance to gullibility, maybe something less honorable than we may want to admit, I guess the most recent example of this is with Kanye West or maybe Justin Bieber, uh, I painfully remember back in the Jesus movement days when Bob Dylan came to know his Messiah, but was soon driven away by foolish, self-righteous, nitpicking Christians. Thankfully, Dylan privately kept growing in his faith in Jesus and is today still walking with the Lord, not in the public eye, but in his eye, which is the only eye that counts. But it's no thanks to many Christians that he's still walking with the Lord. We wouldn't be that way with others if we understood what's going on with ourselves. So what is going on with us? We know we're not even close to being Christ-like in certain areas of our lives. We know that. But we evidently expect to be instantly there, and since we're not, We either give up on it all and think we are hopeless, or worse, keep on struggling secretly while transferring our self-hatred onto others who are trying. Like those I mentioned above, who may be in the limelight and are easy targets for our judgmentalism. We've recently been strongly constrained by the Holy Spirit, numbers of us, people I've talked to as well as myself, that when we are tempted to speak critically of anyone in the public eye who seems to be trying to follow the Lord, stumbling and ignorant as they may be, and who for whatever reason they fall short, we are learning to keep our mouths shut except in prayer. I, I don't know their story. I'm not their judge. And I guess most of all, though I'm not listing this in order of importance, I know what I was like when I first began and even what I'm like now. So I should only use my mouth where they are concerned in prayer and blessing of them.
That's all. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Sadly, we probably can quote it, but we just don't obey it. My beloved friends, if you see a believer who is overtaken in a fault, you who are full of the Spirit, seek to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, and do not exalt yourself over him, knowing that you may need help next time. I think we need to keep this strongly in mind, especially in the next few years, as more and more people of high-profile positions come to Jesus, and they will. It's our job to believe the best for them with love and intercession, and I have failed to do that in many cases, for which I am very sorry. If we misunderstand the scriptures about being new creations and about God giving us a new heart and a new spirit and causing us to walk in his ways, and we beat ourselves up for not getting it right all the time, the more falsely spiritual we are on the outside, the more bitter and angry and judgmental and secretly sinful we are on the inside, then the more judgmental and cruel we will be to those we are judging. How many, many times have we seen this travesty practiced by Christian people, including ourselves? So we need to understand how God brings us to the place of becoming. John chapter 1, verse 12 to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God. This is a strange verse. It's only not strange to us because we have heard it quoted so many times, but it's really a weird statement. We only hear it as not weird when it is used in the context of that scripture. But to illustrate what I'm trying to say, we would never use this phrase in normal speech. We would not refer to one of our children as being given, quote, authority to become our child. Now, I don't want to bore you with a lot of Greek grammar, but if you check this in many translations, you will find some using the word child, others using the word sons, some using the word authority, others using the word power. For what is John saying in this phrase, to as many as received him, who, who, to as many as believed in him, took his promise seriously? That's what that means. To them he gave the authority to become. But obviously... The, the word become implies a process. It's not an instant thing. It is an instant action between you and God that births you into a new realm of, of potential. But you are given authority to become. It makes no sense if it's not referring to a process in which you use this new authority which you wield in his name, by his power, his grace, to become different than you, than you are. Now, sadly, many commentators I've read over the years will just say that all this verse means is that when you are born again, you become a child of God, but before you were not a child of God. Well, I don't find that to be true in Scripture. There are several places in various texts that refer to all humanity as being God's children. If he is our creator, he is our father in the sense that all humanity is his offspring. Acts chapter 17 is just one example of that. There are several. So John is saying something more here than merely making a reference to our new birth, making us into children of God. He's saying that when we receive Jesus, that is, take him seriously enough to believe him. That's what it means to receive Jesus. Then when you begin to believe him, he begins to give you 
authority. Now, why use the word authority? Because it has to do with something Paul refers to in Colossians chapter 1, when it says Jesus has translated us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Whereas under darkness, you had no authority. You were under the power of principalities and evil. You had no ability to choose. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. Now he has given you authority, and that authority is wielded by you and me to begin making willful choices that change us into children of God. Now, I know at, at our new birth, we become a child of God, quote-unquote. And I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to get more into this than, than what I've already said. But and I may get pushback from people on this, and that's all right. I have a very difficult time with the idea that God is not our Father because he's only our creator. Uh, that is an, an opinion. It's not supported by Scripture. It's only supported by certain Scriptures depending on what interpretation you want to put on those Scriptures. But if God creates me, I say this reverently, he is, to some degree, obviously, responsible for me. And so the whole idea that we become children only when we repent is not really fully supported by Scripture or logic. When we become born again, when the Holy Spirit comes into our heart and awakens us and translates us out of the authority of darkness into the kingdom of God, we are then given power to become something different than we are. But that, as I've already stated, is a phrase that refers to a choice we are able to make. Yes, it's by his grace. None of this happens apart from grace. That's kind of a silly, obvious issue. Everything that is good is because of God's grace, for heaven's sakes. Uh, it's not a, a manifestation of works salvation for me to have authority to wield in order to become different than I am. I'm not working for my salvation. I'm working out my salvation. Anyway, again, I'll say more about that later. I have the authority to now express the nature of God, whereas before I only had the authority or the power to express the nature of the devil. So I was a child of the devil. Now I'm able to express my nature as a child of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that anyone who uses that authority to learn to listen to God and obey him are the, different word in Greek, sons of God. Uh, the word for child, technon, which John used in Ch John chapter 1, power to become a child of God, authority to become a child of God. Technon, again, I'm, I'm hesitant to get too technical with the Greek word, but technon means a child who is dependent upon his parent and is usually, therefore, referring to an infant or small child who's dependent. But it carries with it the implication of growing into a child who is able to relate to the parent in an intimate way. And uh, this word that Paul uses in Romans 8 is a different Greek word that is definitely referring to an, a, a child who has grown into adulthood it is a male adult son, technically. But it also applies, obviously, to women because this is a spiritual relationship that both sons and daughters enter into. And it is, Paul says, whoever is 
whoever is able to hear the voice of God and obey it and seeks to hear the voice of God and obey it becomes a son of God, a mature son, a son that can be trusted, a son that becomes a partner with God in God's concerns and enterprises, not merely a dependent little child. Now, obviously, again, this implies a process. So this is both a definite moment of encounter with God and an ongoing process of maturation. Obviously, birth is a definite moment, and the new birth is a definite moment, though not everybody can tell you the time and place when they were born again. Some people come into it in in, uh, ways that they can't pinpoint, but it's uh, legalistic religious stupidity to say, and if you can't tell me the time and the place, then you probably aren't born again. That That's the kind of foolish stuff you hear from people that are small-minded legalists. But it's a kind of meaningless uh, notion uh, to ignore the fact that after we are born again, the very term birth implies a process following on behind birth of growing up. How would you like to just say, all that matters is my birthday, the rest of my life has no meaning? Don't let yourself get caught in the quicksand of questions about all that. The simple truth is that God is intending to deliver us from our false self and bring us into our true self. That's God's intention. It is both an instant initial event and an ongoing process. And it is all by his grace. And yet that grace includes helping us become able to choose freely what he has predestined us to become. So predestination and free will are both true. And we will see that more as we continue in this study. The sad fact of a lot of modern pseudo-Christianity is the idea that this is nothing more than a legal transaction. You are guilty of sin. The court of heaven judges you guilty. Jesus steps in and pays your fine. You are legally now free to go. And boy, do we go. Who wants to stay around the judge once you've been told you are acquitted? And this is called justification. I know I'm being overly simplistic. I'm fully aware that there is a valid definition of justification that includes the legal questions, but that is not the primary issue on God's heart because God is a father before he is a judge. And the spirit of religion, which is driven by the principalities and powers of darkness under the power of the devil, who is a prosecuting attorney, is much more interested in turning the gospel into a legality than a relationship. And without going into all the details of this, some which are valid and some which are not, the end result of thinking of your relationship to God is nothing more than a legality that many people see being born again as nothing more than the legal payment of a debt. They go on living their lives as, quote, forgiven, and they are but independent of God with no desire to become sons, mature partners with God in his concerns, to as many as take him seriously, he gives them power to become. Some take him seriously enough to become only children. And that's good. But his desire is that we go on from there to become trustworthy partners in God's kingdom. There is a predestined goal that is repeatedly described in many scriptures of our becoming like Jesus. But again, many think it is only a matter of getting the initial introduction, getting born again, then muddling through life and at death being given an instant graduation gift of sinlessness and maturity called vaguely going to heaven. The muddle in between the period of being born again and dying and going to heaven, our earthly life 
is lived mostly for ourselves. Decisions are made mostly by ourselves and for ourselves. Mistakes and even gross wrongs are committed but forgiven because the saving grace we first encountered is good for any and every sin throughout life because the insurance policy promises to cover all future needs. And at death we go to heaven. Um, and I, I'm not I'm not trying to belittle the goodness of all of that, but it is not goodness if it becomes a mental, spiritual, emotional retardation where we misunderstand the purpose of God and think the only thing God was interested in is dying for us so he could save us from hell so when we die we can go to heaven. And there are many millions perhaps who have received just that. They've been graciously pardoned for sin, cared for and carried as children of God all their lives but refused to grow beyond that identity and died and are in heaven. <laughs> I personally believe they are going to school there now and are learning far better what they were missing out on in earth. The reason I believe this is that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it. And death is not the end of life for us, but only the real beginning. So if he who has begun a good work in us will complete it, and we refused to let him help us complete it on earth, which none of us can ever really fully do, it obviously continues to go on on the other side. And that's so obvious and so clear and so so scriptural that I fail to understand why anybody would not under, understand it or have trouble hearing it, except that we uh, really are galvanized in our false religious belief systems, which is why Christians are divided into 36,000 denominations, or maybe 30, I don't know how, what the number is now, and fight over all kinds of secondary issues uh, that, they, that, that we can't agree on. But for those of us who are still here on earth and who see more offered in living with Jesus than some mere legal transaction, there is the process of living that God uses to transform us. And every detail of our lives are important. Nothing is too small, too mundane, too wrong, or too difficult. God is working in it all for our good and for his glory in our lives. So we read far more in Scripture than we are just forgiven, precious as that is. We read phrases like, ever-changing from glory to glory. Or, the one I just quoted, he who has begun a good work in us will finish it. Or, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God within us working to will and to accomplish his good pleasure. Or receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to completely save, transform your souls. These and many, many other verses refer to a process of transformation a process that is totally by grace in that apart from God's gracious giving, we could never achieve it or even desire it. Yet it is clearly not a total takeover of our choice-making abilities. God will do what he has promised. He will give us a new heart and a new spirit and we will come to the place where we will walk in his ways and be free of any hooks of our old life. Now, I could just stop right here and, and ask you to think of what I just said. Your predestined destiny is to become free of sin. Free to be who you really are. Free of all the contingencies that sin brings habits, compulsions, unhealthy emotional attachments, idolatry, secret perversions and sins, uh, anger and unforgiveness and bitterness that can ruin relationships and cause so much heartache. 
we, we just came through the holidays again. And I always wonder how many people are suffering so much pain in the holidays because it's at the holidays that their bitterness and unforgiveness in, in their interpersonal relationships are becoming magnified. So instead of greater joy at this season of the year, there's greater sorrow while the devil laughs. But rather than simplistically thinking about this all happening when we go to heaven, that this is some instant fiat of grace that we we just will get at he- in heaven, it's far better than that. And therefore, it's far more difficult than that. What I mean is, if it were a mere fiat, a mere instant transformation that happens when you die. We would no longer be ourselves. And God loves ourselves. He loves you. He doesn't love a robotic, pre-programmed transformation of you that has destroyed in you your own volition and desires. If he were to just instantly reprogram us, who and what would we be? Well, it's for certain we wouldn't be who we are. For we are made up of our own individual experiences, memories, choices, preferences, desires, longings, on and on. And to take us over and make us act in a way that makes no provision for the ongoing elements of our own personal volition, our own lives, would be to not save us but really to destroy us, destroy who we are. Also, to make us behaviorally right without being able to engage with, wrestle with, and come to embrace freely God's heart in any given issue of life would not allow us to become. And Jesus came to make us able to become. He's given us authority to become. The struggle, the battle, the ongoing disappointments and frustrations and mistreatments and drudgeries of this life are how and where our souls are being formed. That's why the Bible sometimes refers to us as having been saved, sometimes refers to us as being saved, and sometimes speaks of a future event in which we shall be completely saved. So there's a beginning, a process, and a completion. But we've pretty much left out the middle one. We don't want the process. We believe the beginning one and look forward to the ending one. But God intends for all of it to be accomplished because God doesn't see it as three processes. He sees the beginning of an ongoing process that eventually is made complete. So we must learn not to waste our time in the middle area of life. We learn, as I said in a few messages back, we learn not to waste our sorrows. Our personal struggle, which Paul calls our light affliction, 2 Corinthians 4.17. I used to get mad at Paul for saying that until I realized what Paul had been through. and Compared to him, mine were light afflictions, but He says, our light afflictions are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I could stop and just spend our time on that verse. Weight of glory, that phrase implies the word weight, implies substance, reality. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm really resisting temptation to, to go off on that word. So I won't do it. In Romans 8, he says that glory is far beyond compare to the trouble that produced the glory in us. The glory is so much greater than the trouble that we went through that produced the glory. This process is completely dependent on grace. But God has made it just as dependent on our choice making in the midst of the process. So when we read statements like, 
work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God within you that is working both to will and to accomplish his desires in you, Philippians 2.12. There should be no mystery about what that statement means. I've spent a whole hour in previous nightlights talking about the phrase fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It obviously does not mean that you work for your salvation and you better be scared that you don't accomplish it for heaven's sakes. That's not what it means. But I can't reiterate all that right now. Um, Our awakened desire to move closer and closer to him is our response to grace. Now, Paul talks about frustrating the grace of God. You can frustrate the grace of God. Uh, that's, that's a thought, isn't it? You frustrate the grace of God every time God whispers to you, come a little closer, and you go the opposite direction. You don't you don't conquer the grace of God. Paul didn't say that we can defeat the grace of God. He said we frustrate it. We to be. Fr- if you ever been frustrated, you know, frustrate means to to keep me from accomplishing what I'm desiring to do. I'm eventually going to do it, but you're frustrating me. Well, God's grace can be frustrated, but it it can't be defeated. He provides a middle ground, so to speak. He provides for us a place where his grace and our free choice meets in that middle ground. In this way, he saves us from our old self, but we are fully present to the process and we participate in it freely. There is not an either-or issue here. It's not sometimes grace working and sometimes our free will working. It is constantly a united process of his love and our need working together to bring our eventual transformation into his likeness. So let's review it again. It's a huge misunderstanding of grace to think that grace is nothing more than a mere legal position for us to be forgiven. We are not just legally forgiven. We are actually forgiven. And yes, it is by grace and grace alone. If God had not freely chosen to come after us and forgive us, it would never have happened. This is clear. But grace is a force, a providential power, an intrusion of God's goodness into our mess. And Paul tells us in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, that grace teaches us. What does it teach? It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. This teaching comes not by mere impartation of information, though that is certainly an important part of it. But it comes by training us. There's a difference between learning and training. He wants our whole being involved. With our minds we learn what is right and true. and With our wills we choose to pursue what is right and true. With our bodies we engage in actions that agree with what is right and true. And in that process we become a living acting out of that truth. This is how he writes his laws on our hearts. This is how we are transformed into his likeness. This is how we incarnate the new creation in actuality so that we are transformed into his likeness. It's a sad misunderstanding among many Bible-believing Christians that conversion just means to believe in Jesus, get baptized, then pretty much go on living in the same old patterns of fleshly sin and their old life uh, is continually manifesting. 
To them, grace doesn't mean the power of God invading their old life to bring them into their true self bit by bit. No, grace is only the old life being covered over by the robe of righteousness. This puts them in mind of a sort of heavenly band-aid of purity being placed on top of an ongoing evil putrid wound of sin. But Jesus came to save us from our sins, not in our sins. And he who has begun a good work in us will complete it. He will perfect that which pertains to me. He will transform me from glory to glory until I appear before him with exceeding joy. Okay. So he has come to save us from our sins, not in our sins. He also has come to free us. Well, what does that mean? That used to really aggravate me bad when Christians would talk about being set free. I used to get so frustrated when I would hear the term, uh, Jesus set me free. I didn't feel free, though I loved Jesus and was trying to walk with him. I was fighting and wrestling with old thoughts and desires and attitudes and struggles and bodily appetites worse than ever. Well, I felt more evil after I was saved than I did before. Why? I wanted to understand. It seemed that the more I sought God, the closer I wanted to draw to him, the harder the war became. It took years for me to come to understand. Jesus did not come to set me free of the battle he came to set me free for the battle. And that's really what I've been trying to get us to this entire time so far. The remainder of our time together, not just in this session, but in sessions to come, Lord willing, is to examine the necessity of being in a frustrated battle. Some of you, I'm sure, might say, Clay, my whole life is a frustrated battle. I do love Jesus. I know he loves me. I know I belong to him. But I am so tired of myself. I am so weary of myself. I'm so weary of the old patterns continuing, continuing to show up. And I read the promises and I embrace them. And sometimes I seem to do okay. But then there's these moments of lapsing and collapsing and frustration. Well, the word frustration keeps showing up over and over, doesn't it? And I don't know what to do. Well, let me tell you. This is, this. Sometimes, sometimes married couples will say, you know, we're fighting all the time. Our marriage is not working. And Mary or I will say, oh, no, no, no. Your marriage is working. It's working to reveal to you how selfish you are, how little you love, and how very little uh, your romantic love is real love because it's so easily overturned by circumstances and it, it the, the 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 purgative is working because it's boiling all the corruption up out of the the wound and making it all come to the surface so that you can't hide from it and ignore it. It is working. Well, that that's just part of the struggle we go through in in marriage. That same thing could apply in every other area of life, where God is purposely resisting, quote, success, because his definition of success is you becoming more like Jesus, not you accomplishing your ego-driven desire for, quote, success. <laughs> I know that doesn't sound very good. Of course it doesn't sound good. Your, your ego will not hear it as good, but your heart should be leaping at the truth of this with hope. Because biblical hope, as we say over and over, is not, I hope this gets better, but it is a guarantee of reaching the goal. He who has begun a good work will finish it. And I'll tell you something. God will accomplish in you what he intended. 
uh, later on, I will give you many, many, many scriptures that you may have ignored uh, that will help you and in, in comfort you in the awareness that he who has begun a good work will finish it. You are destined to be different than you are. Isn't that wonderful news? You are destined. You are predestined according to God's intention and purpose, and God always gets what he wants. You are predestined to become like Jesus. The process you're in is working to bring that about. So in closing, this introductory session on the question of why is change so difficult, change is difficult because it's complicated. Just because God is doing it doesn't mean it's not complicated. It's not complicated to him, obviously, but it is complicated to us. We want simplistic answers. Reality is not simple. Change is complicated because God wants to protect our freedom while at the same time pressing us into his mold and away from the enemy's mold while still helping us be ourselves. So picture this. It's a picture of good pressure against bad pressure. And part of the bad pressure is that darkness appears to make good that which is not good. I mean, the whole world is attracted to that which is evil and think, thinks it's good. And Christians are going through what they think are bad things to escape the real bad uh, and feel like they're being deprived. I mean, you know what I'm saying. I'm not saying it very well, but you all can relate to what I'm saying. Part of the bad pressure is that it appears good and tries to make the good pressure appear bad. So we get confused by the circumstances we're in. We are free of anxiety if we learn to trust God's character and goodness and wisdom in whatever happens because we belong to him and he is working for us for that ultimate good. God is not playing games with us. He's not trying to be unnecessarily mysterious. It's just that that's the way things are. Things are mysterious. And so his character, which is revealed ultimately in Christ on the cross and at the resurrection, is where we place our trust in the dark. Because Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says, He works all things after the counsel of his own will. Or, I like the way the Passion Version says it, before we were ever born, he gave us our destiny. That we would fulfill the plan of God who always accomplishes every purpose and plan in his heart. Uh, we've spent enough time already, by the way, addressing the fact that that does not say that everything that happens happens for a reason or that God causes every event, including gross evil. But he is wise and good enough to work in whatever happens for the fulfillment of his eventual ultimate good purpose for us. But we can't see much of how that's true in our tiny little vantage point. And our trust in him in spite of our questions is what is working in us a far greater weight of glory. To illustrate this, I want you to listen to this old Chinese parable. A wise farmer had a son, a horse, and a neighbor. One morning the son rode off to market in the city, but in the hills the horse threw him and wandered off. So the son came back by himself. What a misfortune, said the neighbor. How do you know, said the farmer. The next day the son set off to look for the lost horse, and he found it, and in addition brought back a splendid wild stallion. Proud at his skill in catching him, what a good fortune, said the neighbor. Well, how do you know, said the farmer. 
Well, the next morning, the son began to break the stallion, but it threw him, and he got his arm broken. What a misfortune, said the neighbor. How do you know, said the farmer. The next morning, the king's recruiting officer came to the village to conscript the young men for war. Because of his temporary incapacity, the son escaped military service. What a good fortune, said the neighbor. How do you know, said the farmer. The next morning, the next morning, etc. For the rebel against God, this story may sound like mere fatalism. But for those who love and trust God, who prayerfully place their free wills in God's sovereign grace, all things work together for an ultimate good outcome, always. We have recently spent a lot of time examining Romans eight twenty three through 28 regarding prayer and the part we play in cooperating with God for his will in our lives. This is the time to examine the next phrase of that text. Romans 8.28 refers to us as those who are called according to his purpose. Then goes on to explain, for whom he did foreknow, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Our predestined destiny is to be like Jesus. So whatever is going on with us, as we learn to yield to God in it, and this does not mean to yield to evil that we may be up against, but to yield to God's molding hand on us as we press against that evil, that pressure is working for our good and is working in us a far more exceeding weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Father, I pray for every man and woman listening right now, regardless of what they may be going through, I pray, Father, that they will hear your heart crying out to their heart to trust you in the face of it all and know that you are working always for our good and for your glory in our lives. And your glory, strangely enough, is our good. And we ask you, Father, to help us understand Everything you're doing, you're doing for a good purpose. And when things don't seem to be right and don't seem to be good and don't, you can't, we can't see any way this can turn out right. The crucifixion became a resurrection. And that pattern is repeated over and over in the lives of those who have trusted the one who was crucified and rose from the dead for us. We thank you that you have begun a good work in us, and you will complete it. In Jesus' name, amen.